Sport Radio. Of course, I'm your host, James Corbett, and you are tuned in right now to Republic Broadcasting. And, of course, I'm coming to you tonight all the way from the shores of western Japan here on the 23rd of November 2011, and it's 11 p.m. Central Time. And, of course, as I said, you're tuned into Corbett Report Radio. And uh, just on a programming note, of course, tomorrow for all the American listeners out there is going to be Thanksgiving Day. So there will be uh, no live broadcast tomorrow. Um, we will be re-airing uh, an episode that, in fact, aired just last week, um, one with uh, Christina Gomez. And uh, this was a very important conversation that we, we heard last week, talking about Occupy Wall Street. And it was a very important conversation because it fleshed out a lot of the, the great things that are going on in the Occupy movement and some of the great, really informed people who are part of this movement who are really working to educate others about the real heart of the beast, the uh, the monetary system itself, including the Federal Reserve and, of course, uh, all of the bankster cronies who are really owners of that privately held central bank. As I'm sure many of the listeners out there, if not all of them, know by now, the uh, the real heart of the beast that we're facing. And, and to the extent that the Occupy movement is about that, I am 100% for it. But tonight... We're going to be exploring the other side of this uh, this dichotomous beast that is the Occupy movement, and um, I'm sure we'll we'll rankle people's feathers one way or another. Whether you're a supporter or detractor of the movement, you can be uh, upset either tonight or tomorrow night, because tonight we're going to be getting into Occupy uh, as well, but from the other perspective. And um, and uh, well, I haven't really talked too much to to the guest about this before, but uh, tonight we're going to be talking to. Lawrence McCurry, who has a blog called Canada Awakes, and you can find that at canadaawakes.blogspot.com. That's C-A-N-A-D-A-A-W-A-K-E-S.blogspot.com. And by the way, if you ever miss the link to the guest's website, don't worry. You can always find the link from either the RBN archives or, of course, on corbettreport.com slash radio. A few hours after each episode airs, uh, the notes will go up, including a link to the the guest's website. So if you ever want to uh, find out more about the whoever we're talking to in a given episode, please go to, go there and um, you can find the link. But tonight we're going to be talking to Lawrence McCurry about a very important article that he wrote recently on his uh, blog called Who is Behind the Control of the Occupy Toronto Movement? And uh, it's, I think, a very important thing to be hashing out right now, and especially from someone like Lawrence McCurry, who has been... He has been in attendance at Occupy Toronto, obviously the one of the Canadian counterparts or offshoots of the Occupy movement, and he's been there since uh, even before it began in the first uh, pre-meetings where they were uh, trying to decide, you know, how to set things up and and all of that. So he has very much the inside perspective on this, and and he's not speaking as someone who's coming at it from the outside. He's speaking of it as someone who's been part of this and been trying to participate, but uh, he has some well, interesting stories to tell about uh, about what what's really transpired so far with regards to this movement. And uh, let me just uh, clarify for the people out there: a lot of people are uh, are wondering uh, about my my position on on Occupy, and a lot of people have condemned me from both sides, both the supporters and detractors of this movement. And I'm just going to have to to say that I can't come out 100% either way on this because I know there are a lot of really great, really informed people like Christina Gomez out there doing really great work spreading information about the the real heart of the beast and the Federal Reserve and all of that. And then I know there are also a lot of, um, well, not so clued in people who are uh, really just uh, out campaigning for another term of Obama. 
And uh, I don't know, I mean, I don't know the percentage of, of that involved in this movement or who's in charge of this, but but we're going to be uh, opening up that can of worms tonight, so I hope you'll join us. And at any rate, let's take a few-minute break, and we'll be back with our guest right after this. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I'm your host, James Corbett, from CorbettReport.com. And boy, do we have an interesting discussion lined up for you this evening. And I know it's going to be a contentious one for a lot of people out there. So if you want to get in and get your voice heard on this very interesting topic, you can join us at 1-800-313-9443. That's 1-800-313-9443. But uh, tonight we're going to be talking about, as I said before the break, we're going to be talking about the Occupy Movement and a very interesting article from our guest tonight, Lawrence McCurry of CanadaAwakes.blogspot.com. And he wrote an article on the 21st of November, just a few days ago, entitled, Who is Behind the Control of the Occupy Toronto Movement? And once again, I've received a lot of uh, contentious emails from supporters and detractors of the Occupy Movement, some people who feel very strongly both ways on this issue. And myself personally, I'm just one of those people. I guess I can see both sides. I can see the the great positive aspects of the Occupy movement, and I can also see the uh, the traps and pitfalls of this movement. And, uh, and well, that's uh, an ambivalent answer, but unfortunately that's the way I see it. And uh, a lot of people really prefer people to come out and speak in absolutes. Either it's absolutely good or it's absolutely evil, but I can't really do that. And as we know from Star Wars, only Sith Lords and George W. Bush deal in absolutes. So I think I'll uh, I think I'll just deal with ambivalence for now. But um, but tonight to g- g- hash out some of these issues and get into some of the the real complicated parts of of this uh, this Occupy movement, we're going to be t- joined tonight by Lawrence McCurry, who's from Canada, obviously, and it runs CanadaWakes.blogspot.com. And as I say, he's been involved with the Occupy Toronto movement since uh, really since its inception. So it's very exciting to uh, to get his perspective on all of this as as someone who's been on the inside of it. So Lawrence McCurry, thank you so much for joining us tonight on the broadcast. Hey, thanks for having me on, James. Well, it is excellent to talk to you. And as as listeners to the Corbett Report might remember, I talked to you. Um, I think it was a, maybe last month maybe a month or two months ago now, I'm not sure, a while ago, about this uh, the Occupy Toronto. And at the time, we were just sort of preparing for it. It hadn't really taken place yet. But uh, now we've had a, a month or so to have, um, actually going on two months of, of protests now, so we can get a little bit broader perspective on it. But for people who didn't catch our first conversation, perhaps you can introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, well, uh, I'm a writer, uh, activist here in Toronto, I'm also the uh, chair of uh, communications and publicity for the Canada Action Party and uh, general all-around troublemaker. Uh, you know, it's funny, that, in- that interview we did before was right after the organizational meeting, but before the actual occupation started. So, you know, we at the time we didn't have a real... Um, clear understanding of, of how this was going to fly. But it's true, even at the, the pre-organizational meeting, uh, it had us shaking our heads over it. I, I remember standing at the back of the crowd with uh, 
some of the other uh, alternative uh, media guys here in Toronto, people that, that you know and have interviewed, like Dan Dix. And um, right off the bat, we're saying, who are these guys? You know, as, since we had the G20 here in Toronto, we've sort of got a very tight-knit little group of, of activists that show up for a lot of the protests, uh, you know, uh, if nothing else, just to cover them and uh, hang out with the uh, with the regulars that usually show up at these things. So, you know, we've got a group that have been to all the post-G20 protests, the police brutality protests, um, you know, the, the various things that come up in a major city like Canada or Toronto. And um, when... We went to this pre-Occupy movement at uh, Bernsey Park, which was uh, a week or two before the, the actual uh, uh, occupying of, of uh, St. James Park happened. Um, you know, right away, it, it sort of set off some red flags with us. Um, you know, there was maybe 150, 200 people showed up for this this pre-Occupy meeting. And this uh, group of, uh, of university students... Um, showed up right off the bat and just took complete control of this crowd and started handling them like a bunch of pros. I mean, within a half an hour, they had these guys sitting in a big, you know, all these people sitting in a big semicircle in the lawn in front of them, waving their fingers and crossing their arms and making the little triangle signs and using the people's mic and you know, the people's mic set me off more than anything else right from the start because uh, I, I've seen that that method used before. Um, you know, we are a, a pretty big city here in Toronto, and like American cities, uh, we have religious cults, you know, the Harry Krishnas, the Moonies. And, and, you know, this people's mic just struck me as a as a, a psychological control method that I'd seen before, but I, I didn't really think too much of it at the time. But um, the the way that that these people who are unknown to anybody else in the activist community here um, just moved in and took over this crowd like a bunch of pros, uh, it, it definitely set off some suspicions right from the start. I can certainly imagine it would, and as you say, I mean, I'm sure the activist community did come together quite a bit over the uh, the G20 that took place there last year, and of course, if people haven't uh, really seen what transpired at the, that travesty of justice, then I would really strongly suggest that they get uh, Dan Dix's excellent documentary on the subject, Into the Fire, and he, he of course, can be found at pressfortruth.ca, and just an incredible documentary of the... Uh, the destruction of the, the Canadian Constitution and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that went on there. And as I say, that must have brought the, uh, the community close together. So to have a bunch of complete unknowns stepping in and suddenly, you know, commandeering the crowd and having them doing all these hand gestures and people's mic things that have been going on at every single Occupy all around the country and around the continent and even around the world, I mean, it's, it's, it speaks of some sort of organization going on at a higher level that, uh, that people, I guess, aren't seeing. So uh, well, I think I, that's... I've sort of pieced that together. You know, when I first saw it in New York, I realized they were arresting everybody that had a megaphone. So in, in, in the Wall Street movement, I could sort of see why they were using it. But I, I started looking into this, and, and as I said, it struck me. I've, I've seen it used before. And, you know, it's 
what it is is it's classic neurolinguistic programming. Um, neurolinguistic programming is a a method for changing the behavior patterns and attitudes of uh, people in a in a in a group dynamic, and, and it's a basically it's a it's a psychology uh, method for for. Best for programming people. I, I agree. I mean, let, let's yeah. flush that out a little bit because if you look at the, uh, for example, as you say, in New York, they have the, the bylaws that don't allow for, for megaphones, so they, they have to do this. And when I first saw that, I thought, well, that's that's a nice and ingenious idea well, for getting yeah, around you that. Know, in, in, in the pre-meeting, I couldn't understand why anybody didn't bring a bullhorn. Yeah. Um, you know, there was like 200 people there. They seemed like they were very well organized but not well organized enough to bring a bullhorn. We have no such laws in Toronto. And a matter of fact, in Toronto, you could use a bullhorn to your heart's content until 11 o'clock in the evening, just about anywhere in the city. So, you know, it, it struck me odd that they couldn't get a $30 bullhorn together. Right, but, and, and let's know. let's press that point a little, because I, I one thing that struck me from a video that I saw recently of uh, some, some troublemakers in, at the Occupy Wall Street who um, were talking about how they were going to, you know, firebomb Macy's and things like that. It was caught on camera, these comments. And, of course, people will come, will come and say, well, that's not representative of the majority of the people. And I, I'm well aware of that. But one thing that I found interesting was that these... Uh, one of these men who was talking about, uh, you know, we're going to go and we're going to storm the city and blah, blah, blah. And he was using the people's mic and everyone around him was repeating what he was saying. He was saying, you know, we're going to we're going to storm them. We're going to storm them. We're going to take the streets. We're going to take the streets. And then he started saying, and we're going to burn them down. We're going to do all this. And, and people automatically started to s- repeat what he was saying. But then they realized, oh, he doesn't want us to repeat this bit. But it was bizarre was to see everyone just automatically starting to repeat him. I was watching the live stream from Toronto last night. Um, you know, I'm, I'm able to watch what's going on in the park even when I'm not there. And and somebody got up there and, and said, well, that's because we're all a bunch of, of, of monkeys. Nothing more than a bunch of chattering monkeys. And the crowd repeated it. <laughs> now, you could literally get up there and say, you're all stupid. And the crowd will reply, we're all stupid. I don't get it. I really don't get it. But it's, it is uh, a control well, method. Uh, it is well, a tell control us, tell method. Tell us about the hand signals when you, as well, when you, I don't quite understand confront, When you confront them, I, that was one of the first things I talked to, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the facilitators, the leaders in this leaderless movement about, you know, why they use that, that people's mic method. And they've got very good excuses for this. Oh, well, it, it's because it makes everybody feel like they're part of the whole and it creates community spirit. And everybody gets together on the same page. And if you don't like what somebody's saying, you just don't have to repeat it. And, you know, they've got all these excuses. But whatever excuses they wanted to use, at the end of the day, it's still neuro-linguistic programming. And, and, and it still is a method for, containing, for controlling thought beha- patterns and behavior in a large group. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I'm going to agree with you on that. And I, I would just say personally, if I was in attendance there, I, I, even if I was going along with what the person said and even if I agreed with it, I wouldn't be repeating every word they said and I wouldn't be using their little hand signals or whatever. I'd clap if I felt like clapping or I'd, I'd speak if I felt like speaking and I, I just wouldn't be going along with that. So to me, it, it does smack of some sort of programming going on. So, so tell us a little bit about the hand signals. That's something I'm interested in because I, I don't really know what they even mean. 
Well, well, to tell you the truth, I never got into all of that either because I, I sort of dismissed a lot of that right off the bat. But for example, if if they're in agreement, they they stick up their hands and wave their fingers, you know. And I mentioned to somebody how how totally retarded that looks, and you know, they said, "Well, what else would you do?" I said, "Well, you know, thumbs up worked for two thousand years. <laughs> yeah. The Romans started it." You know, yeah. and, and well, it had a different meaning back then, down, but yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, the only excuse I could think of is, is to stick your thumb up or thumbs down doesn't look as exactly. ridiculous. All right, well, let's, let's take a short break, but we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back, friends. This is Corbett Report Radio, and I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking about the Occupy movement and who or what may be behind this movement and the organization that is directing these facilitators who seem to have taken over this movement. And uh, we're getting into this with our guest, Lawrence McCurry of CanadaAwakes.blogspot.com, who's recently written an article on this called Who is Behind the Control of the Occupy Toronto Movement? And, uh, and of course, this is uh, an interesting conversation, so if you want to get involved, it's 1-800-313-9443. But we already have our first caller on the line, so let's go to the call. Uh, I understand we have Barbara from California. Barbara, how are you doing this evening? Hi, I'm fine, thank you. How are you, James and Laura? I'm doing all right. Yeah, it's great to have a good good talk about this. Um, and what the first question I had was, where can I find Lawrence's uh, article to read about who's running, who's behind the... Uh, Wall Street Movement, or his idea about that? Uh, Lawrence, you want to fire out the website? Uh, okay, well, that's at uh, uh, Canada Awakes, one word, dot blogspot, dot com. And Canada if you Awakes. just uh, look at the most recent article, which would be November the 12th. Okay. Or 21st, um, I should say. November 21st? Well, okay, um, did you come up with anything about... Uh, I mean, did you narrow it down to who who you think is are these facilitators, um, or do you just you just speculating and just wondering? Well, well no, 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 no. I could I could speak for the Toronto group. Uh huh. Um, in the Toronto group, it seems that uh, all the facilitators, the people that were actually guiding and steering this movement, mm-hmm. all came out of the University of Toronto. They all belong to a, a highly suspect group called the uh, Toronto People's Assembly on Climate Justice, which was one of those Al Gore-funded man-made global warming hoax uh, groups, um, you know, that that, that, uh, were pushing for the carbon taxes. Um, I highly suspect this group is is funded by the U.N. Uh, You know, it's funny. What comes out of these these facilitators are are a lot of the, the same sort of Phrases and technology, or uh, phrases and terminology that you find out of the Agenda 21 documents. You know, words like like consensus and facilitator and general assembly itself is, you know, something that the UN has used for a while. Um, I, there's no doubt in my mind that this is a, a UN-sponsored group. Um, as I said, right out of the University of Toronto. Uh, to be totally honest with you, in, in Canada we have uh, a, a secret service, it's called CSIS, the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service, which is the equivalent of the CIA in, Can- uh, in the United States. 
And, you know, if I had to take a guess at this, now, mind you, I can't prove this to be true, but if I had to take a guess at it, I would say that CSIS basically took the group they had spying on the University of Toronto and just moved them right into the Occupy movement. They've definitely got ties to this this highly suspect uh, uh, climate justice group. And, um, you know, all of their, their terminology and everything comes straight out of the U.N. Now, now this, this whole Occupy movement is based on a document that supposedly came out of the Occupy movement in Spain. And it's called, uh, you, you can look this up, it's all over the net. It's called A Quick Guide on Group Dynamics in People's Assembly. Now, they claim this document came out of the Occupy movement in Spain. But if you actually look up and read this document, it, it reads more like a CIA manual than it, than it does anything else. Um, so, you, yeah, you my, my, guess, my guess is the UN is behind the, the Occupy movement, and, and, and CIA and CSIS are backing them up. And, well, excuse me, Lawrence, um, can I ask another question then? Certainly. Okay, so these people from the University of Toronto... Um, do you know exactly who they are and their names and all that? Um, well, I, I know who most of them are. I know who the ringleaders are. Um, it's a funny story because it's, it's literally taken me all of this time just to track down facilitators. Um, every time I see one of these guys in the park, they run from me. Um, when, when the Occupy movement started, uh, on the very first day, uh, they were holding a general assembly, and what they were doing was they were laying down rules uh, for conduct and how people should relate to one another. Um, you know, no aggressive language, and you know the way you could talk to each other and stuff. And as a writer, I you know that that sort of set my hair on on the back of my neck on end because you know language is such an important thing, and and I really don't care for for people telling me how to use language when talking to other people. And one of the things they said, if you've got a problem, contact the facilitator. So I immediately walked right to the media tent and, and walked in and, and said, hey, I want to talk to a facilitator. The guy behind the table looked up and said, hey, you're Lawrence, aren't you? So, I mean, they had my number already on day one. So did and, you and name their names in, the, in your article? Um, I did name one of them in my first article. The, the one I just wrote was the third in a series of articles that, I, that I'd written. So um, I, did, uh -huh. I did name one, but I do have the names of, of who I consider to be the ringleaders, but I did only publish one of them. Huh. Um, I, I didn't see the value in, in naming these people right off, but, but believe well, it, me, the inner circle knows who they are. I mean, are. it would give some credibility, I think. You know, people could look it up and see, are they really who they you know, who you purport them to be. But the last, the last thing I want to say is that um, I don't agree about the, the, the mic, the people's mic. If you have a huge mass amount of people... Okay, that's an important part, way. Robert, but we're coming up against the break. Hold on, we'll come back to that right after the break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Why does it feel that you are constantly tested? 
Welcome back, friends, to Corporate Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking about the Occupy movement and who may or may not be behind the control of that movement. And we're talking to our guest, Lawrence McCurry of CanadaAwakes.blogspot.com. And uh, to get the flip side of what we're talking about tonight, tomorrow night we'll be re-airing, on Thanksgiving Thursday, we'll be re-airing our recent conversation with Christina Gomez, who's been part of Occupy Wall Street for the past two months and who has been uh, working to inform people about the Federal Reserve System and and the real uh, heart of the beast behind all of this, uh, all of the political shenanigans that we see going on. So for a more upbeat and positive uh, account of uh, what's happening in Occupy, you can tune in tomorrow night for that. But tonight we're getting into some of the more contentious issues about what's really behind this movement. And we have on the line Barbara from California, who was just getting into a point about the people's microphone, where people repeat what each speaker is saying. So, so Barbara, go ahead with your point. Okay. Um, I just, I, I, I kind of think the uh, neuro-linguistic programming idea is a little bit n- not really correct about this. I mean, there could be something in there with the hand signals and all that that is kind of, kind of weird. <clears throat> but just in terms of having people understand what other people are saying, it does work, work very well. Um, for instance, if you're in a group and, and you're, people are around you, like in a circle, because there are so many people, like you might have 250 or 500 or 1,000 people, and you're not allowed because some places they're not allowed to have the bullhorns. Um, it is a pretty good way of uh, getting your your words through, you know. But anyway, that's all I'll say about that, and I'll let someone else um, have a chance. But I, I do want to thank Lawrence for the research and doing this because I have been wondering and I've been kind of concerned about the... Um, the facilitators, and if they are, if anybody can be a facilitator, uh, then that's fine, you know, because people do kind of have to, you know, organize things. But if they're the same people all the time, um, that that would be a problem to me. So I'm really glad that someone's checking into that because I haven't been able to find it anywhere else. So, well, I, I'd, I'd like to address both those points okay. if I can. First of all, whether whether you agree on it or not, it is what it is. You know, neuro-linguistic programming is neuro-linguistic programming, whether you agree with it or not. Um, and, and second of all, you know, we don't have those laws here. I've actually seen facilitators get offered a bullhorn and then refuse it, you know, t- to use the people's mic. Now, as a communication technique, uh, it's terrible. It slows the meetings down incredibly. It takes out the the inflections and, and the tone of, of, of what you're saying. And because everything's got to be in very small clips like that, it, it, it really takes away the, the, the flow and the meaning of, of any concept that you're trying to get across when you have to do it one sentence at a time. Now, it's, it's actually a very poor method for communication. It slows meetings down incredibly. And um, it's used as a as a control method in the in the Occupy movement, and you know I'd I'd like to say that um, you know I support the movement, I support the goals and the ideals of the movement, and there's a lot of very dedicated people that you know we're we're working within the movement for real change, um, but the but the people who are who who are actually running it and and they. They say, oh, there's no leaders, it's a leaderless movement. Well, frankly, that's not true, okay, because these people were running it. And the facilitation committee 
seemed to be that one committee that nobody could crack. From day one, I had seasoned activists say to me, Oh, Lawrence, you know, there's nothing sinister going on here. Get involved. Well, you know, if you go to, to say, Hey, I want to get involved, they'll put you on a committee, all right. They'll put you on the media committee or the food committee or the medic committee or uh, logistics or make you a marshal. But nobody seems to be able to crack that facilitation committee. Even, even though they did take people onto the facilitation committee, they, they sidetracked them. So that the facilitators that were there to begin with, that were trained beforehand, still ended up being the facilitators right through the, 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 the whole show. And by the way, they shut down Occupy Toronto today. The police actually moved into the park and and, and close the whole thing down. I don't think this is the end of the Occupy movement in Toronto. I think it's just a, an evolution. And, and to be totally honest with you, I think it's a good thing that, that they got thrown out of the park today because, uh, you know, now maybe this movement can, can evolve into something, you know, different than what it is and, and perhaps have an opportunity to get rid of these controlled leaders. Interesting points. All right. Well, thank you so much for that, Barbara. I think it's uh, you made some good points, and it is important to go through this. So thank you for the phone call. But uh, we also have another call on the line. We have Raf from Calgary. So let's go to Raf. How are you doing tonight? Hi there. Um, Hi. James, nice to talk to you. I uh, emailed you a couple times. Uh, anyway, my question is, um, I'm just wondering, I live in Calgary, and um, <clears throat> the Occupy Calgary thing here kind of happened out of the blue. And I sort of try to keep up to date with what's going on around town. And I never heard anything about, you know, where to meet or anything like that. And I had people come up to me and say, well, there's a meeting going on or there's going to be a protest. Are you going? And I thought, well, no, I'm not going to go because some of the other things I know that, I mean, I don't want to be uh, on the hit list either if uh, think, if it's for the wrong reason. But I guess my question is, if the, how does, that, how does the, the co-op that... How does the Occupy movement help the co-opters? In what way? Like, how do they benefit from that? Because at the end here, they're cracking down and shutting her down when people show up, good good people that are, you know, just agree with uh, finding some justice. Very good question. I'd like to address that, too. Um, first of all, I'm not sure that, that all cities are as tightly controlled as Toronto and New York are. You know, in the United States, everybody looks at the Occupy Wall Street movement for the simple reason that, that that's where the stock market is. That's where the bankers are. In Toronto, it's the same thing. You know, you, we, we have Occupy movements right across the country, but everybody's paying more attention to Toronto. Why? Well, that's because where the stock market is. That's where all the banks are. Um, and, and as for why would they want to control it, well, why would they want to con You know, here's the thing. The, 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 the people of the free world have been totally screwed over by the banks and the large corporations. We're literally living in a society that's, that's quickly slipping into fascism. If you look I at agree. Italy, Italy's a totally fascist country right now. I mean, they've got a government in Italy that was appointed by the European Union. None of those people were elected. They're talking about having elections in 2013. But technically, it's a fascist country right now. The, the, the entire government of Italy was installed by a, a bunch of people that were, that were involved with the banking system. And, and Greece is pretty well the same thing. As soon as the prime minister stood up and said, well, you know, people aren't happy with all these austerity measures we've been imposing, uh, 
you know, so we could pay off the bankers, uh, maybe we should have a referendum. Bam, he was gone. He was replaced, you know, by by a, a banker by the, the European Union. You know, and now now Germany's talking about about taking over the whole thing. Uh, Europe is quickly slipping into fascism, and and you know, in Canada, we've been living in a in a fascist state for quite a while. People just don't realize it. Our democracy is a joke. You know, whether you vote liberal or conservative, you've you've they're they're both globalists, and no, I, I a agree, globalist but... agenda no matter who you vote for. Uh, for example, every prime minister we've had in Canada for the last 50 years since Lester B. Pearson uh, have all been employees of Paul D. Murray of Power Corporation, both liberal and conservative, with the exception of Joe Clark, but he was only prime minister for like six months. But but Again, otherwise, they've all been helpful. employees of Power Corporation. Uh, Brian Moroni sits on the board of directors of Power Corporation. Raf, go ahead. But how does that help them? Like, I mean, like what I'm getting at is... Uh, so if they are co-opting it and they want something out of it, let's say to stir up some chaos and then bring in the solution of the New World Order or whatever it is that they bring in, I'm just wondering why now they would go to the extreme of busting it all up and, and, and really showing the tyranny involved, like you're saying, the fascism. We're I, I, I can tell you exactly what. Um, the Occupy movement was in St. James Park for four weeks, issued no significant political statements um, didn't didn't take any protest or action that really targeted the people that they should have been going after instead the leaders of the movement pimped them out to the labor movement you know so I mean there was a lot of marches in, in favor of this union or that union um, they did they did come out and support the Robin Hood tax which was which was uh, exactly what the bankers wanted them to do. You know, when I when I took a poll of people in the park, I only found one guy that actually supported the Robin Hood tax. You know, they passed that on a at a general assembly meeting on a Tuesday night when it was cold and raining. There couldn't have been more than twenty people there, and they were probably all facilitators. So what they're doing is 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 the bankers and the corporations. They knew that there was going to be public discontent because basically they're busting out the middle class. So they knew that there was going to be an uprising. By getting in there early and, and starting the Occupy movement, they figured they could control the uprising. And in Toronto, they did a pretty damn fine job of it because the four weeks they were in that park, they didn't issue any political manifesto. They didn't, they didn't uh, issue any political statements of significant or, or march on any of the banks or the stock exchange or anything else. So, so yeah, they controlled it, so it was ineffective. And, and that, that's the whole idea behind controlled opposition. But, but the busting it up now really shows the... the well, do you know what was interesting it, so about how that? How did that work? I'll Where's tell it? you what was interesting about that. You know, in New York, they, they, they were getting so frustrated... Uh, at the Occupy Wall Street uh, protest with these general assemblies that were going nowhere and the facilitators that were holding things up, that they actually had a revolt and got rid of a lot of their facilitators and started working on a new method other than the general assemblies to get things done. And as soon as they did that, the very same day, bam, the police moved in and broke up the camp at Occupy Wall Street. In Toronto, it was the same thing. As soon as the facilitators, you know, I, I started questioning uh, 
uh, a lot of things that weren't transparent about the movement and doing it in a very public way. And, and as soon as I started doing that, a lot of other people started asking these very same questions. Well, as soon as the facilitators start losing their grip on power, boom, the city moves in with a, with a, with a, uh, an eviction notice to get all these people out of the park. It was sort of something that got out of control. But it also shows you, too, that there's so many people out there. Like, a lot of times you think you're the only guy that's, you know, kind of aware of things. And you find out that, oh, my God, there's, like, people everywhere that are kind of clued in. And it's almost like the mainstream media doesn't even want you to know that there's others clued in, too. Because if you're all to know, all of a sudden, we might have a problem. Bingo. I think that's that's the point. And that's one of the hopeful things that can come out of this movement, even if it has been co-opted or even if it has been controlled. I think there's still something valuable in bringing a lot of the real good people together who really do know what's going on and are clued in. And, and it, yeah, if we get to see the, the, how this type of movement can be controlled or steered in a certain direction, and if we see the, uh, the police state tyranny, I think that can clue us into to what's really going on at an even deeper level. So I think there are good things to come from this, even if it is 100% controlled. Because um, obviously the people themselves aren't 100% controlled. So I think that's a valuable point. All right, any other points tonight, Raf? No, that's it. Thanks a lot, James. Thank you, uh, and um, great show. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you. All right, thanks for the call. All right, so absolutely. Well, Lawrence, we've talked about so many different aspects of this, but one thing that I wanted to to get into a little bit in more detail, because I think it's really the heart of this whole issue, is the, the claim that this is a leaderless movement, but of course we have the facilitators and the, the people who are really steering the discussion. So I think that's fundamentally the dichotomy that, that should be everyone should be dwelling upon. I mean, there has to be some sort of uh, accounting for that, even among the supporters of this movement. And, uh, and I'm sure you've had this discussion with many people on the ground. When you have this type of conversation with people, what, what's the, uh, the views of people on the ground about this? Well, you know, that's the funny thing about it. I'd, I'd be talking to somebody, you know, outside the media tent or something, and I'd go, the leaders around here, and they'd go, there are no leaders. And I'd look at them and go, come on. Don't make me pull out my notebook. You know who they are as well as I do. And they'd look at the ground and shuffle their feet and go, yeah, yeah, but, you know, there's there's really no leaders in the movement. Well, you know, if there's no leaders in the movement, who are these guys running around the park giving orders to everybody? Of course there's leaders in the movement, you know. And, and at first it was denial. Oh, there are no leaders. You know, by week two it was like, okay, well, yeah, you know, there are leaders, but they're, they're not really leaders. By week three... They're asking the same questions that I am. How do we get rid of the facilitators? You know, because it, it, it took them a while to clue in, you know. The more intelligent people, I guess it takes a while for the Kool-Aid to wear off. But, um, yeah, there's no question about it. And, and, and when you're watching it for a while, you realize that, in a way, it's almost run like a cult. You know, these, these people are, are living in the park, low-protein diet, communal living, the, the Romans established uh, mind control 2,000 years ago. Uh, modern armies use it today, so do religious cults. You know, low-protein diet, communal living, uh, indoctrination, marches and, and hard labor, throw in a little bit of chanting, bam, you got a cult. Now, that's not to say the Occupy movement is a cult, but there is a certain core group, you know, that, that live in the park and, they're maybe not the most intelligent out of the bunch. And the people that are, are leading the movement, they're not, they're not living in the park. 
They've always got nice, clean clothes. They're carrying around a clipboard. You know, they only show up in... in the only time you see them all together is when they're trying to vote something down or bring something up at a general assembly. And, and yeah, they've got their followers, you know, who will turn out and support them at some of these meetings. Uh, we actually had a document that we tried ramming through in the open just to break the, uh, the, 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 the hold that the facilitators had over it. And, you know, the, that whole thing went down in such a way uh, that after that, there was absolutely no question that that the whole thing was being controlled, and a lot of the more intelligent people sort of woke up and went, "Oh yeah, okay, I see what's going on here now." Well, tell us about that. What happened when you tried to ram that through? Well, you know what happened was after three weeks in the park, the the media were making a lot of derogatory statements towards the uh, towards the movement. Ah, a bunch of hippies and crackheads squatting in the park, you know, and, and, and you could tell that the media was building up uh, public uh, demand to have them moved out of the park. Uh, me and a group of other people came up with a list of demands. We, we, we basically wrote uh, a list that, that we felt was acceptable to everybody. You know, it was, it was uh, vague enough that, that it didn't make any specific demands for political change. Um, right. Okay. For well, example, we, we okay. Hold on with that. We're just coming up to a break. We'll come back with the uh, with your list of demands and what happened there. And also, we have one last caller on the line. So stay tuned for the closing minutes of Corbett Report Radio right after these messages. Welcome back, friends. James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com, and we are entering the final few minutes of Corbett Report Radio with our guest Lawrence McCurry of CanadaAwakes.blogspot.com. And once again, there will be a link to his website from the RBN archives and, of course, also from CorbettReport.com slash radio, where you can always find uh, the websites of the guests uh, within a few hours of the broadcast itself. And just in the f final few minutes here, we're going to finish up with the Lawrence McCurry story about trying to, to pass a list of demands in the Occupy Toronto movement. But before that, we have one final caller on the line. We have Owen from Florida. So, Owen, what, what are your thoughts on this tonight? Well, it was, I think, the 6th of October, motivated somewhat by what I had been hearing about media coverage, uh, you know, the, the, the biased coverage that was mentioned by the, the fellow on your show here. And uh, it was actually I, I, my very first protest. I, I, I'm here in Sarasota, Florida, and I ended up briefly looking at the Sarasota protest, which was pretty small, I think, with a, a, a peak of about 100 or so people. And then I met a guy, and we, we rode out to Tampa, where I think at the prime of the day there were over 2,000 people. And, you know, I... I didn't really know exactly what to look for, so I, I asked questions and did a little story on that. And uh, I shortly after I did the story, I started hearing, you know, Webster Tarpley and other people, Alex Jones, uh, speaking of, you know, the infiltrations and you know the people's mic and, and stuff like that. And, and uh, 
you know, I, I became somewhat concerned about that. Uh, I had also become concerned about the the uh, the suspicions that it was being used as an Obama promotion campaign. But I think, you know, the the the, the larger portion of the people are there for for various reasons. But I, I also don't think that many people can be controlled, no more than we are generally in society. And I think a lot of good is still coming out of this, regardless of the control. You know, for example, hate me if you will, I was at Starbucks the other day, and I was overhearing conversations of middle-aged men uh, sounding absolutely appalled at, at the way the police have been handling these things. And these are normal people in collared shirts hanging out absolutely so so people are are starting to notice the the tyranny that's going on and again that's i think another positive outcome of this but we're just in the last couple of minutes here so lawrence do you want to respond to those points quite quickly well you know the uprising was due to happen the the middle class have been totally screwed over by the banks and the corporations and and the government that supports them our governments have been hijacked uh, we no longer have a democracy. So there was bound to be an uprising. The, the control in the group is, is to keep it spinning its wheels in the mud so that nothing, you know, uh, uh, significant will come out of it so that it doesn't turn into something bigger than it is. So it's, it's, it's not that you're controlling this large number of people. This large number of people were going to have, uh, uh, an uprising or, or a revolution, if you will, anyway. What the control is, is to minimize the impact of that uprising, is to minimize the impact of, of, of that discontent so that it goes nowhere. So it's not really that they're con trying to control this large group of people. It's trying to diminish the impact that this large group of people are going to have. Okay, excellent. Well, very, very insightful conversation. Lots of good points um, back and forth there, but unfortunately we're going to have to leave it there as we're fresh out of time. But, Lawrence, uh, I'd just like to thank you once again for joining us, and I'd like to invite well, well, all the listeners, you, of course. Well, I'd just like to everyone to check out your website, of course, canadawakes.blogspot.com, for more information about this and to read your article and, and the things that you've written in the past about this. But let's leave it there for tonight. Of course, tomorrow night, Thanksgiving, so we will not be live. We'll be re-airing. Uh, our recent conversation with Christina Gomez talking about Occupy Wall Street, so perhaps the other side of this conversation. So I hope you'll stay tuned for that, and we'll be back on Friday night with Friday Night Highlights. So from James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thank you for listening. <laughs>